Greetings from Latter-day Media, presenting our dear friend and epic historian on Joseph Smith and church history, Brother K. Godfrey, The Silver-Lined Clouds of War, Part 3. Welcome back. Today's podcast will conclude Joseph's day in Missouri, the period of time that we're referring to as the Silver-Lined Clouds of War. We're going to be discussing 1838, but mostly 1839. This will be Part 3, and again, the last podcast dealing with Joseph in Missouri. On December 1st, 1838, the prophet entered Liberty Jail. In 1833, Solomon Fry built the stone-walled jail. It had two levels, the upper guard's quarter and the lower dungeon. Its walls measure four feet thick. Access to the lower dungeon was through a trap door, and there were two small grated windows for light. It was a dark, dismal, filthy, wet, foul-smelling, vermin-infested hole that these six men would call home for the next 128 days. There they would suffer physical trauma, toothache, earache, pneumonia, hunger, and cold. The prisoners had 90 visits from 67 different people. Wives, relatives, attorneys, apostles, and friends called on the brethren. Emma and Phoebe Rigdon were two of the first to visit. When the prophet asked Emma for some blankets, she regretfully informed him that William McClellan had stolen them, and she had none to give. Sister Rigdon had come to nurse her husband's ailing health. While in prison, Sidney had a personality malady, possibly due to injuries sustained when he was tarred and feathered in Ohio. Sidney had become prone to uncontrollable fits of laughter and incoherent speech. Phoebe and daughter Nancy were a great comfort to Sydney. Mary Fielding Smith, Hiram's wife, did not greet her husband until February 1st. This was due to the birth of Joseph F. Smith at Far West on November 13th. Mary brought the infant son to Hiram for a name and a blessing. Joseph F. would later become the sixth president of the church. Mary was quite ill during and after the birth of her son and remained bedridden for several months. Well, the question might be asked, so why these six men? Why were they jailed together? But jailing the first presidency of the church, Joseph, Hiram, and Sidney is apparent. But why Lyman White, Caleb Baldwin, and Alexander McRae? Lyman White was fearless in his defense of the saints at Adam on Diamond. He was the leader of the Diamond Boys, a feared group of men assembled to protect the Diamond community. He was a counselor in the Diamond Stake Presidency and a colonel in the Caldwell County Militia. He also had some involvement in Danite activities in the area. He was charged with both treason and murder. While in Liberty Jail, he was told that he would replace David W. Patton as an Apostle of the Lord. He was ordained such on April 18, 1841. Of all those jailed at Liberty, Alexander McRae suffered the most, both physically and emotionally. Alexander served as a captain in the Caldwell County Militia. Upon his surrender at Far West, Captain McRae drew his sword, flailing it in the air, and drove it deep into the ground, stating, quote, You've got my arms. You have not got my spunk. Well, it was his spunk and his unwavering faith that landed him in jail. McRae and Caleb Baldwin both served as scribes for the prophet as he spoke comfort to the church from Liberty Jail. And this would be a great source of comfort to Alexander as he missed his wife Eunice and his ten children. 
Caleb Baldwin, the man with the fiery tongue, always speaking in defense of his friends. He was the oldest of those at Liberty Jail. He was 47 at the time. Caleb was engaged in skirmishes with the mob while in Jackson County at the Battle of the Blue. He was captured and, quote, was beaten almost to death by Missourians with hickory sticks, the scars of which he would carry for the rest of his life. Well, during the Mormon War, Caleb fought in defense of his people. He was arrested and charged with treason. He was brought before Judge Austin King to be arraigned, and Caleb asked for a fair trial, and asked, what am I to do now with my family who is being driven from the state? Well, Judge King said, quote, renounce your religion and forsake Joseph Smith, and you will be set free and protected. Well, Caleb refused and was jailed with Joseph and the others. Well, as I mentioned, Caleb Baldwin and Alexander McRae scribed for the prophet while in Liberty Jail. This included a 29-page letter to the saints, much of which became canonized as Doctrine and Covenants sections 121, 122, and 123. On February the 7th, 1839, and again on March 1st, the Brethren would try to unsuccessfully escape from Liberty Jail. Eventually, they resigned themselves to be, quote, in hell, surrounded with demons. On December the 13th, 1838, the Far West High Council met for the first time to try to decide what action to take. Brigham Young presided at the meeting. Far West was now a temporary refuge camp for more than 7,000 saints. The church had been fined $200,000 to pay the state for the trouble of driving them from the state. The saints petitioned the legislature to rescind Boggs' order, and a bill was introduced in the legislature to rescind, but was conveniently tabled until the spring, knowing that the saints would be gone from Missouri by then. Brigham Young realized that the saints were running out of options. The slide reads, with the death of David W. Patton and the apostasy of Thomas B. Marsh, Brigham became the senior apostle in charge. And again, the challenge, what do you do with 7,000 refugees? On December the 19th, Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball took care of some vacancies. They set apart John E. Page and John Taylor as members of the Twelve Apostles per Joseph's Revelation on July the 8th. As the year 1838 came to a close, Joseph celebrated his 33rd birthday behind bars. Quote, Thus, in their gloomy prison house in the land of liberty, in the town of liberty, they beheld the eventful year of 1838 pass away. Its closing hours found them deprived of liberty, their families robbed and destitute, their brethren scattered and driven from their once pleasant, happy homes by a ruthless mob and all this for the testimony they bore of Jesus the Christ. On January 16, 1839, the High Council met for the last time at Far West. Brigham Young knew that this chapter was closing fast. Armed patrols were threatening the saints on every front, pressuring them to leave or suffer continued persecution. It was also felt that Joseph would not be released from jail until the saints had left the state. On January 29th, Brigham Young introduced a covenant to assist the poor and create a seven-member committee on removal. The covenant was signed by 380 men. William Huntington chaired the committee. The move was to begin immediately. The question was, 
where to go. West was Indian territory, south was back through Missouri, east, however, was familiar and reassuring. Quincy, Illinois was selected, primarily because of the encouragements of Brigham Young's old friend from New York, John P. Green. Brother Green had established a residency in Quincy in 1835. Now, historically, another group of people were being driven from their homes at the very time the saints were being ousted. The Cherokee Indians were being driven 1,200 miles to the west. Their trek became known as the Trail of Tears. Their march, like that of the saints, resulted in the deaths of more than a 1,000. They crossed the Mississippi in January 1839 near Cape Girardeau. At the very same time, the saints were forced to cross the Mississippi near Quincy, Illinois. The trial at Liberty began on January 25, 1839. It would last eight days. The most significant outcome of the trial was the release of Sidney Rigdon. Sidney pleaded his own case and was so convincing and eloquent that he had everyone in tears. The court released him and even passed a hat to raise money for his return. After collecting near a hundred dollars, he was told, quote, Now, old gentleman, make the quickest possible time to your family who need you and your help. One month later, on February 25th, he was given a horse, a pistol, and a guide and told to flee. Meanwhile, Brigham Young and the Committee on Removal were busy preparing the way for the migration to Quincy. The strategy was to place corn and food along the trail to assist the poor and needy. The committee decided to move the families of the prisoners first. On February 6, 1839, Committeeman Stephen Markham left far west with Emma Smith. Emma walked the 150 miles. She crossed the Mississippi River on February 15th with Alexander and Frederick in her arms and Joseph Smith III and Julia at her skirts. Emma, unaware of Joseph's condition, secured the sacred manuscript of the inspired translation of the Bible and found shelter in the home of a gracious Quincy family, John and Sarah Cleveland. Judge Cleveland's generosity was also later extended to the Rigdon family. During February, 10,000 saints migrated to western Illinois. The Quincy Democratic Association made several resolutions promising assistance and help to the forthcoming saints. It was this time that Brigham Young fled far west as threats on his life increased. Now this slide of Judge John and Sarah Cleveland is, is interesting. Um, it reads that Sarah and her son, Augusta, joined the church in 1835. John, her husband, and son, Alexander, did not join. They moved to Quincy, Illinois in 1836, and later they would move to Nauvoo in 1842. Sarah would serve as the first counselor to Emma Smith in the first Relief Society presidency. She also ended up as a plural wife to the prophet Joseph Smith. John became a judge in Nauvoo. Now, although Sarah wanted to go west with the saints, she would have advised by Brigham Young to stay with her husband for, quote, he was a good man. She stayed with John, and she died in 1856. 
As mentioned, two jailbreaks were attempted by the prisoners while at Liberty Jail. The first occurred on February 7th. The prisoners were assisted by six other brethren, and an attempt was made to overpower the guards who brought food to them. Well, they were unsuccessful, and many of the accomplices were arrested. Now, the second attempt occurred on March 1st. It seems that Oren Porter Rockwell smuggled an auger into the cell, and an attempt was made to loosen the stones and logs and dig their way out, but their escape plans were leaked out and ten guards stopped them before they started. Meanwhile, 250 miles away, the saints were pouring into Quincy. It was evident that a more permanent settlement needed to be found. The saints had settled as far as 75 miles from Quincy in small groups, the largest groups settled in Lima and Yelrome. They were headed by Isaac Morley. With the encouragement of Joseph, a committee was formed to search out a new gathering place. Newell Knight and Allenson Ripley were to take the lead in this effort. Uh, this is interesting. Um, Isaac Morley was quite a character. And when he established uh, Yelrome, which is just really his name, Morley, spelled backwards, dropping the E. He was a uh, he was quite a character. A conference of the church was held in Quincy on March 17th. Individuals like Hinkle, Avard, Phelps, and Marsh, and others were excommunicated, and George A. Smith was appointed to the Twelve Apostles to replace Thomas Marsh. On March 15, 1839, Hiram Smith submitted a petition for habeas corpus from imprisonment at Liberty Jail. It was endorsed by four others and addressed to the Missouri Supreme Court Justice George Tompkin. A writ of habeas corpus literally means, quote, produce the body. It is a court order demanding that a public official deliver an imprisoned individual to the court to show a valid reason for the person's detention. The brethren were starting to put pressure on the state to either charge them or release them. On March 20th, while in jail, Alexander McRae recorded an enlightening revelation given to Joseph. O God, where art thou? My son, peace be unto thy soul. Thine adversity and thine affliction shall be but a small moment. And then, if thou endure it well, God shall exalt thee on high. Thou shalt triumph over all thy foes. Thy friends do stand by thee, and they shall yet hail thee again with warm hearts and friendly hands. Thou art not yet as Job. Thy friends do not contend against thee, neither charge thee with transgressions as they did Job. Thou art called to pass through tribulations. And, if the very jaws of hell shall gap open the mouth wide after thee, know thou, my son, that these things shall give thee experience, and shall be for thy good. The Son of Man hath descended below them all, are thou greater than he? Now this was a source of great comfort to the brethren. With the refugees outnumbering the Quincy residents three to one, many residents became somewhat interested in the Mormon ways. Washington Park became a tent city and a favorite place to preach from. One such resident, Ezra T. Benson, listened with interest as the brethren testified. Later, his grandson, Ezra Taft Benson would serve as a president of the church. Well, as Brother Knight and Ripley were searching for the new gathering place, a Mr. Isaac Galen and Hugh White 
local friends of the church offered to sell the church land in the town of Commerce, Illinois. Commerce lay about 50 miles north of Quincy. The land there was swampy, damp, and pretty much unhealthy. But the price was right. However, the idea to purchase was postponed for a bit with the intent to look elsewhere. Well, as the saints were looking for a new place of residency, Joseph and his brethren also found themselves finally moving on. They were leaving Liberty Jail. On April 6, 1839, ironically the anniversary of the church, after 128 days of confinement, the prisoners were taken to Gallatin, Davies County. There they would have a grand jury hearing. On Monday, April 8th, they were put in the custody of the Davies County Sheriff, William Morgan. They were taken a mile out of town to the home of Elisha B. Creekmore, where the trial was to take place. During the interim, Joseph was confronted by a man named John Brassfield, the premier wrestler in the state. He wanted to wrestle Joseph. Joseph promptly threw him twice, the second time into a mud hole. Mr. Brassfield grew to respect Joseph for his strength and his convictions. On Tuesday, April 9th, the hearing convened with Judge Thomas C. Birch. Birch was the prosecuting attorney at the Richmond trial. By April 11th, the jury, a majority of them who were drunk most of the time, and three of whom were involved in the Hans Mill attack, convicted the brethren of treason. The defense counsel requested a change of venue on grounds of extreme prejudice, and the request was granted and the order was given to change to Boone County, the same location where Parley P. Pratt and his group were being held. Sheriff Morgan, William Bowman, John Brassfield the wrestler, John Pope, and Wilson McKinney escorted the prisoners out of Gallatin and headed towards Columbia in Boone County. They traveled first to Diamond, where they spent the night at William Bowman's cabin, formerly that of Lyman White. They then traveled on for three days. On Tuesday, April 16th, they stopped at Yellow Creek in Cheriton County. Governor Bobbs had instructed Judge Birch to provide an opportunity for the prisoners to escape. The state had been embarrassed enough. The illegality of what had occurred over the last few months needed closure. Sheriff Morgan had been instructed, quote, never to carry them to Boone County. Well, that night, three of the guards got drunk and the other two assisted the group's escape. Just prior to leaving, the prophet promised with a note the full payment for two horses plus an amount agreed upon for their freedom. The total was $500. Now, this note would be paid in part by Heber C. Kimball just a few days later. And again, on February 23, 1843, when John Brassfield visited Nauvoo and received the balance of what was owed him. When the guards returned home to Gallatin, they claimed that they were overpowered by the prisoners and they had escaped. Well, the residents were infuriated. They beat and tormented them that allowed the escape. William Bowman was singled out and tied to a steel rail and dragged through the streets. He died a short time later. On April 18th, with Brigham Young having fled the area, Heber C. Kimball ordered the Committee on Removal to leave Far West immediately for their lives were in danger. The men gathered the things together and left within the hour. That very day, twelve men came into town with the intentions of killing the brethren. Far West was now deserted. This is also the day that Brigham Young, Orson Pratt, 
Warford Woodruff, John Taylor, and George A. Smith left Quincy en route back to Far West to fulfill the prophecy Joseph had given on July 8, 1838, that on the very temple site at Far West, on April 26, 1839, the apostles would leave for missions to England. Unknowingly, Joseph and his brother, nearing Quincy, passed the apostles, headed to Far West. They passed as ships in the night. As Heber secreted himself, awaiting for the apostles to arrive at Far West, he learned of Joseph's escape. He met Mr. John Brassfield, the wrestler, returning to Gallatin, who presented Heber with a note drawn by Joseph for $500 for horses. Heber raised 400 to give it to the man. Elder Kimball then secreted himself and waited in this extremely dangerous situation for the arrival of his friends. On April 26th, Heber joined the group, and they quietly slipped into Far West. They convened a conference at the home of Samuel Clark. Thirty-one individuals were cut off from the church, and at midnight, the group assembled at the temple site. Wilford Woodruff and George A. Smith were ordained as apostles. All seven of the twelve offered prayers on the southeast cornerstone and sang the song, Adam on Diamond. Under the direction of master builder Alpheus Cutler, a one-ton stone was rolled by the brethren onto the southeast corner, laying the foundation for the temple agreeable to the revelation. With John Page, John Taylor, Wilford Woodruff, and George A. Smith now ordained, the covenant was now fulfilled. The apostles then left to go back to Quincy to prepare to serve their missions, thus fulfilling the revelation given Joseph on July 8, 1838. As Joseph's group traveled towards Quincy, they used fake names uh, with those they possibly would meet en route. On one occasion, Alexander McRae, who was traveling under the supposed name of Mr. Brown, forgot his name when confronted by a passerby. He suddenly faked being sick until one of the other brethren approached him and said, Mr. Brown, what is the matter? Well, he immediately felt better once reminded of his fictitious name. However, the nice man insisted that he drink a glass of whiskey to ensure his continued health. Now, this slide says, not knowing who they might meet along the way, Joseph and the brethren kept to the side roads. They passed through Macon, Shelby, and Marion counties en route to Quincy. On April 22nd, Joseph entered Quincy. The first to see him was Dimmick Huntington, who told Joseph that his family was four miles out of town at the home of John Cleveland. What a glorious reunion must have occurred as Joseph was reunited with his family and good friend Sidney Rigdon. In D&C 122, Thou art called to pass through tribulations. Therefore fear not what man can do, for God shall be with you forever and ever. With Joseph reunited with the saints, he immediately set out to establish a new home for the faithful flock. He visited the Commerce, Illinois area, which consisted of one stone house, three wooden homes, and two block houses. Despite the unhealthy location, Joseph felt that this was the right place. On April 24th, the council resolved to purchase Commerce and also to visit Iowa for additional land to settle on. Now, this slide gives you the names of the commerce area. Initially, the Indians called it Ketchikuma, 
It then was tra- it then was called Trading Oak in 1823, then changed to Venus in 1829, to Commerce in 1834, and then eventually to Nauvoo in 1839. The land was purchased on May Day, 1839. The church purchased 135 acres of swampland from Hugh White for $5,000 and 47 adjoining acres of improved land from Dr. Isaac Galen for $9,000. Later, other purchases would be made on the Iowa side of the Mississippi River. The seven faithful apostles returned from far west on May 2nd. And on May 4th, a conference of the church was held, sanctioning the proceedings of the Twelve in the absence of Joseph. Brighamine was set apart as president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. The Twelve were to begin their missions to England as soon as possible. Eventually, nine of the Twelve would perform their missions. Now, this slide is interesting. These, these stones, cemetery stones, are those of the James White family. In 1825, Captain James White purchased the land. It was called Venus at the time, Nauvoo, and he traded with the Sac and the Fox Indians. He built the first stone house near the river's edge. Today, that stone home is underwater with the rise of the Mississippi due to the dam. His son was Hugh White, the same Hugh White that sold 135 acres of swampland to the church. The saints were also told to prepare to move to Commerce, Illinois. On Friday, May 10th, the prophet Emma and their four children moved into the two-story log home that was formerly that of Hugh White. By mid-May, the prophet was laying out a city. Swamps were being drained, trees cut, and the land plowed. And for the fifth time in less than ten years, the saints started over. Joseph renamed the city Nauvoo, which translates literally to Quote, a beautiful situation, or the city beautiful. Meanwhile, in May 1839, Parley P. Pratt found himself, Morris Phelps, King Follett, and Lyman Gibbs, the Mormon turncoat, all in jail in Columbia, Boone County, Missouri. Earlier in April, Judge Austin King released brothers Chase and Shear. The change of venue from Richmond to Columbia was based on extreme prejudice. These brethren would record more than seven months behind bars. Eventually, on July 4th, 1839, amidst the holiday commotion, Parley, Morris, and King escaped. King Follett was quickly recaptured, however. But with the assistance of Parley's brother, Orson Pratt, Parley and Morris did escape to Quincy, much to the joy of their family and friends. King Follett was finally acquitted and released in October of 1839. Lyman Gibbs, despite his dissenting to obtain favor with the captors, remained in prison for a while. As Nauvoo started its history, Joseph started to write his own. On June the 11th, with the aid of his clerk, James Maholland, the sacred record was begun. Many scribes were used. Some fell away and never returned. Some fell away and did return, and others died. This was an ongoing challenge for Joseph to find the right aid and clerk. On June 24th, the city of Nashville, Iowa, just across the Mississippi from Nauvoo, was purchased. It comprised 20,000 acres and became an alternate settlement for the saints. Now, on this slide here, we refer to James Maholland scribing for the first Illinois Minute Book, or 
or history, but there are so many others that were engaged in scribing for the prophet. Individuals like Martin Harris and Oliver Cowdery, of course. Even Emma scribed at a time, for a time for, for the prophet. Uh, John Whitmer, Sidney Rigdon, Frederick G. Williams, Warren Parrish, James Maholland, W. W. Phelps, George W. Robinson, Willard Richards, Thomas Bullock, William Clayton, and Robert B. Thompson, just to name a few of those who were asked to assist in recording sacred history. On June 27, 1839, the first conference of the church was held in Nauvoo. At this conference, Orson Hyde, who had given earlier testimony against Joseph at Far West, confessed of his wrongdoings. Later in October, Orson Hyde would be restored to the Quorum of Twelve Apostles. Now, ironically, on this date, a great day of rejoicing at the return of the prodigal son, um, five years later would be the saddest day in the history of the church, the day the prophet Joseph was martyred. Now, as we bring the silver-lined clouds of war to a conclusion, I feel to bring to closure a few loose ends. The 80 acres which contained the temple site at Far West was purchased by President Joseph F. Smith in 1909 from Jacob Whitmer for $7,000. The title now resides with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It took 137 years before the truth of the persecutions against the Mormons was acknowledged by the state of Missouri. On June 25, 1976, Governor Christopher S. Bond executed Executive Order 44 rescinding Boggs' order. He labeled the incident as a dark chapter in Missouri history. I want to read to you that executive order, if I might, here for just a second, issued by Christopher Bond. Whereas on October 27th, 1838, the governor of the state of Missouri, Lalburn W. Boggs, issued an order calling for the extermination or expulsion of the Mormons from the state of Missouri, and whereas Governor Boggs' order clearly contravened the rights of life, liberty, property, and the religious freedom as guaranteed by the Constitution of the United States, as well as the Constitution of the state of Missouri, and whereas in this centennial year, as we reflect on our nation's heritage, the exercise of religious freedom is without question one of the basic tenets of our free democratic republic. Now therefore, I, Christopher S. Bond, governor of the state of Missouri, by virtue of the authority vested in me by the Constitution and the laws of the state of Missouri, do hereby order as followed. Expressing on behalf of all Missourians our deep regret for the injustice and undue suffering which was caused by this 1838 order, I hereby rescind Executive Order Number 44, dated October 27, 1838, issued by Governor Lalburn W. Boggs. I have hereby set my hand and caused to be affixed this seal of the great state of Missouri in the city of Jefferson on this, the 25th day of June, 1976, Christopher S. Bond. Let's talk a little bit about the Whitmers. After the Saints fled Missouri, the Whitmer family stayed in Missouri. Peter Whitmer III died in Richmond in 1854. 
Jacob Whitmer, a Book of Mormon witness, died in Richmond in 1856. David Whitmer, one of the three witnesses, died in Richmond in 1888 after starting up his own church, the Church of Christ. As you can see on this slide, we show different things relative to David. It's interesting that he is referred to as, and I quote, Mayor of Richmond and the most honest person in town. John Whitmer, his brother, the first church historian, died in Kingston, Missouri, not far from Richmond, in 1878. Hiram Page, a Book of Mormon witness and relative of the Whitmer family, died in Richmond in 1852. Now, a little bit about our, our friend Oliver Cowdery. Oliver Cowdery's death on March the 3rd, 1850, was an, um, among friends in Richmond. He was rebaptized on November the 12th, 1848, by Orson Hyde at Potawatomi, Iowa. He was en route to Utah after a 10-year absence from the church. He stopped off at Richmond to see his old friend David Whitmer. While there, he became ill and would die in Richmond. Oliver and the Whitmer men never denied their conviction of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon. This quote I'm going to read to you from the slide is one... Uh, referred to to a man named Jacob, Jacob Gates who was visiting Oliver just prior to his death. And this is what Oliver said to him. Jacob Gates, I want you to remember what I say to you. I'm a dying man. And what would it profit me to tell you a lie? I know, said he, that this Book of Mormon was translated by the gift and power of God. My eyes saw my ears heard, and my understanding was touched, and I know that whereof I testify is true. It was no dream, no vain imagination of the mind. It was real. So what silver lined clouds can possibly be found in persecution, bondage, and war? Could any just and noble man have benefited from five months of 24-hour-a-day confinement? Perhaps only one the Lord's anointed prophet Joseph Smith. Only with his body captured could he truly liberate his mind. Hiram Smith said, quote, There were prophets before, but Joseph has the spirit and power of all prophets. Before Liberty Jail, the mantle of spokesman for the church fell on Oliver Cowdery or Sidney Rigdon. After Liberty, no one ever spoke again for Joseph. The last five years of his life would be filled with the knowledge of the magnificent plan of salvation in all of its glorious fullness. Parley P. Pratt once said of Joseph, he could gaze into eternity, penetrate the heavens, and comprehend all worlds. Joseph was able to find the silver-lined clouds of war. Now having concluded this particular portion or chapter of the life of the prophet Joseph Smith in Missouri. Our next podcast, we're going to uh, we're going to do something a little special. We're going to do a special podcast on Adam on Diamond before we journey with the prophet Joseph Smith uh, to Nauvoo. So until then, thank you for joining me today, and I hope you found the material we presented to be historically significant in your continuing study of the Doctrine and Covenants. A bonus resource to enhance your appreciation of the Prophet Joseph Smith with little-known facts and research about American and church history. Thank you for listening today and for sharing this comefollowme2021.com website. 
We sure appreciate those who have been contributing on our Patreon page under Latter-day Media. We'll have a link in the show notes, and we would love to invite more to help support this work. To contact Kay, email him at footstepsofjoseph at gmail.com.